everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Chawton House podcast with me, your host, Lizzie Frisby. This is where you can find out more about some of the events and the history behind the great house based in the tiny village of Chawton in Hampshire. It was once home to Edward Austen Knight, the brother of world-famous writer Jane Austen. Following on from the last episode with the previous owner of the estate and now Chawton House trustee, Richard Knight, I caught up with his daughter and landscape architect, Cassie Blackwell, to find out all about the renovation of the Chawton House landscape and gardens from the 1990s right up until the present day. Sandy Lerner had been keen for Cassie and her brother, the current owner of the freehold, Adam, to get involved with the restoration and decision-making process as part of the Knight family legacy. This is because the house, gardens, stables, farm and parkland have all been in the Knight family since 1558. Good morning, Cassie. How are you? Very well, thank you, Lizzie. How are you? I'm really well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining me for the Chawton House podcast. So I can introduce you to everyone. So you are a landscape architect yourself, is that right? Yes. Yeah, and you are also a daughter of Richard Knight. And could you tell us anything else about you? I worked on Chawton House Gardens from um, about 1997 to 2002. And since then, I've been in commercial landscape architecture and also working in the Far East. And I head up history at Hong Kong Design Institute. And uh, back in the UK, we've also bought some property for biodiversity and so we're we're farming near near Farnham so uh that's a that's a little bit about me I'm quite old (laughs) (laughs) not at all brilliant so very exciting and we're going to be of course talking to you today about the role you played in the restoration of the gardens at the great house as we so like to call it um and was this your first time that you got experience as a landscape architect then or had you done that beforehand well I've been um, I've been working for a bit I was very young and I'd been watching Chawton and what Kim Wilkie had been doing what Jilly Drummond had been doing with projects that we'd already tried at Chawton and I had a passion for it the whole role of restoration is quite complicated and I'd been to a lecture by John Sales, who was head of gardens at the National Trust at the time, and he was making me quite intimidated. And luckily, when we first got involved, my brother and I both got teamed with very good professionals in restoration. So I got teamed with Sybil Wade, and together we formed a, a plan following a brief. And uh, so that brief was, was drawn up with a huge team of client consultant advisors including Mavis Beatty uh, of the uh, of Garden History Society and my dad who was basically in charge of farming and Sandy Lerner who was the over the arch um, kind of queen of the of the project so it wasn't just me on my own it was a huge team effort right from the beginning. Mm. So can you tell us a bit about your role then within the restoration amongst that huge team? (laughs) The first thing was um, writing the brief. And I'd come from a long history of loving the landscape as it was. And it was absolutely stunning um, from the word go. And Christopher Hussey in the Country Life in 
in the 1940s had talked about the air of antiquity, um, which it still had. And my main concern was not changing anything. And when you've got a client and uh, um, various people all wanting different things, the brief is the first thing and setting out aims and objectives and also working out what the genus loci is, the USP. And uh, we all agreed it was that air of antiquity. So we needed to change the landscape for the future and completely renovate the house and the parking and all sorts of modern things, but also aim to go back to where we started to make sure that it was just as romantic and and antique as, as when we started. Was there a particular time that you were aiming for to get the gardens like? Um, well, from my point of view, it was going back to 1987 um, or 1995 when I when I first started on you know working on this this huge project of um, what dad had inherited and so we we were very kind of protective and wanted to keep it as it was then our client Sandy wanted to take it back to 1840 yeah. uh, so so luckily the landscape was picturesque when we when we first got it because it was so overgrown and so beautiful but also the period that we that Sandy wanted to take it back to was also picturesque. So in, in a way, the two landscape fashions married in really well. So our next thing was just trying to analyse what we really wanted to protect in the landscape that was post-1840. And that involved going to Hampshire Records Office, to the Bodleian Library, to all sorts of different sources to get together as much evidence as we could to form a, um, a master plan and work out what what we really thought after uh, all this analysis we needed to keep. And so we went back to the character of the picturesque, but we actually kept all those layers of history after 1840 in the end. And uh, so that's what that's what you've got now. Wow. And so what was it like before back in 90, the sort of late 1990s when you first started? Did you say it was overgrown? And everything. Hmm. Am I right in thinking there was a pool in the gardens at some point? Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of um, uh, layers of, of history that had been added. Um, and Brooke Knight, one of my uncles, had put in a swimming pool um, in the 1940s. And that was um, concrete. And he put it into the side of uh, um, the hill going down from the house into the valley. And one of our restoration um objectives was to open up that view back from the valley up to the house and put a footpath down it so that people could look up and reappreciate the picturesque view of the of the house mm-hmm. and the pool was right in the in in the middle of that view so right. i actually oversaw taking it out um with a jcb and not my own i wasn't driving <laughs> but i was with the um archaeologists ecologists and we we literally spent days just taking away concrete and making sure that we looked after everything that we found and we we only took out vegetation that that could get back to that view yeah it doesn't sound like the most convenient place to have a swimming pool well I think it had a great view because it also looked from the house out into the landscape at the time and then when it started leaking and it wasn't um you know it wasn't used anymore yeah. The whole um, area just got overgrown with hawthorn, mm-hmm. and so that's what we were we were clearing when we opened the view back up. 
Yeah. And the famous walled garden of Jordan House, did you play a role in bringing that to making it how it was today? Or was that kind of bits of it there, but bits of it not there? Well, I mean, it, it was the main element is the walls, which were built by Edward Jane Austen's brother, and then Edward's son, who extended the walls a bit higher. And I went to the um, Hampshire Records office and Rosemary Dunhill just handed me something and said, you're going to find this really interesting. And it was Edward Austin's garden plans. Oh, wow. So I was just completely overwhelmed. And I'm reading off it now. There were things like uh, scarlet nectarine. There's four different types of nectarines, um, peaches. Nothing there when we were working on it because nobody had needed that vegetate, you know, all that, all that fruit. But Sandy let me go over to Monticello and find out if we could actually source any of that, you know, those fruit trees anymore. In, in I, think, I suppose it was about 1998 and uh, we could we could get them all in from America wow. so we actually um, Joe Cody and uh, who was the head gardener and I worked on getting those garden plans backed up back up to speed and all those all those fruit trees are there now and uh, um, some of the nectarines aren't but the cherries and a lot of you know the more hardy stuff is is there now Goodness, it's almost as if you had to sort of step back into a time machine and like lay it out in that kind of way. Almost, is it fair to say, copying the bit of history? Totally, yes. I mean, in restoration, there's lots of different words. You can recreate, you can restore. And where you're actually putting back what was there, you are actually doing pure restoration. Mm. That's really cool. <laughs> and so was there, I, I feel like there must have been, surely there must have been a few obstacles when you're trying to recreate this old form of landscape. Were there particularly tricky moments throughout the whole process? Yes, I think mainly going back to that original brief. Um, you know, constantly there's pressures to get rid of things or modernise things um, when you're going forward and now it's 25 years later or 20 years later and I'm still going back and reviewing with the head gardeners you know what what direction we're going we're going in making sure that it stays as we as we really originally envisaged which it it has I'm so excited <laughs> and the thing I, I personally love about the gardens is the fact that we really like to um, at Jordan House, they really like to use those vegetables and fruit from the garden, from the walled garden, in the tea room food and all of that. It is kind of, as I remember when I was interviewing Caroline Knight, how she recalled her grandmother always using food from the garden and putting that into the cooking food. So it's making the most of the things that you have around you and in that landscape. And you obviously made that possible with... Yeah, I, I really enjoyed listening to Caroline's podcast and particularly about the freezers in the kitchen that they'd fill, you know, in the autumn and then eat all that food right through the through the winter. Yeah. And I can relate to that. And the other thing you, you asked about the challenge and as landscape architects, we do lots of plans. And actually, I found that the gardeners and the team understood sketches much better. So I would do a sketch before and after with photographs for every single element of the garden right. which was put across that that picturesque character and uh, actually Julia and I have found a lot of them just in the last couple of months and we've been reviewing them so that's that was really useful just as a um, 
is a kind of communication technique. And now I teach in Hong Kong and one of the big things that we do is, is Photoshop, just trying to get everything that we, we plan and list on schedules into really nice visuals so that everybody can understand what we actually want. Mm. And also as well as to mention sort of woodland parks are still correct me if I'm wrong but I think it's a very small amount of woodland to what it once was obviously because uh, the sort of boundaries of Chawton House um, have gotten a bit smaller over the years but still the woodland was that all part of the plan as well? Yes that's uh, interesting because we talk about the gardens but actually it's called it's gardens and parkland so the gardens and parkland are about 250 acres now and they go right from Chawton Village that was Farringdon and when we started they were arable so one of the things we did was research how you put that back to parkland and I was going around talking to people like Charles Flower who's the specialist in wildflower um, parkland uh, seed mixes and then we put it down over a couple of years and that's what you can see now and then all the woodland shores around the parkland which are there were there already were part of a much older landscape and then we planted thousands and thousands of trees putting back the clumps within the parkland and now 20 years later you can actually see significant areas of areas of big trees which is really exciting yeah it's hard to imagine it without the big trees and sort of parkland bit uh, yes and uh even now you're keeping up with planning with uh, one of the head gardeners, Julia, keeping track of how the garden's always looking. I, I imagine it must be quite difficult to, I mean, obviously you can contain a garden and try and keep it up to scratch, but has there been any changes between the first sort of restoration and how the gardens are today? Are there any particular changes that have had to happen over the years naturally? Actually, uh, it's those it's that tree planting that's really made the difference. Along the A32, we put in a belt of trees so that you couldn't see all the traffic going along the road. And now that's all planted up, or it's grown up. And then just literally the edge of the garden, as you look out from the house, now you can walk into the wilderness and you can enjoy looking out into the park from the wilderness. And so that, that kind of fluid footpath network is much better now. And it's getting better all the time. How was it in the past then? Well, if you knew where you were going, it was fine. <laughs> but uh, it was probably quite uneven underfoot on the footpaths and uh, still absolutely beautiful. I don't think the actual element of beauty has changed right from the start, but it's just become more user-friendly so that mm. you can still enjoy the beauty, but you can get around it much more easily. Definitely. Do you have any particular memories of the process that stuck out to you that were maybe your favourite parts or the part that you're most proud of working on across the gardens and the parkland? Um, yes, I think one of my favourite things is the, is the lawns. And um, I remember finding out that they were being planted 200 years ago oh. and possibly never, ever interfered with. So if you look at the sword, the different species within the lawn, that's what that's what Edward Austin would have planted. So Jane would have walked the same species. Those kinds of feelings are incredible. Mm. And then the actual park is a real achievement. Just just looking out from 
the kitchen garden, where, where you walk past the kitchen garden to the park, and then bang, you've got that massive space. So the spatial sequences that you go through are all going to continue to evolve as we as the whole thing matures and hopefully it'll be even more drama as you go into the park there'll be even more beautiful views as you walk through the wilderness so all this thing is is going to carry on improving i hope over the next you know next generations yeah that's really fascinating and it must be so special to think that as you say edward austin knight had planted that grass and played a large role back in designing what the garden is today mm. and to think Jane Austen and her sister was walking across the Chawton Gardens makes it really mm. special doesn't it? Absolutely I love the sculpture now down in the in the churchyard of Jane Austen looking back to the village so she would have walked along the road or along the footpath from the village to the to the church right through Chawton House Parkland. For sure and finally then I just want to find out a little bit more about your work since then, because I guess Chawton must have been one of your earlier projects. As you say, you were quite young when you started working on the gardens. Has your work at Chawton House helped you with your work onwards from that? Has it, was that quite a challenge in comparison to other work as a landscape architect? I think what was really interesting was, was um, working with Sandy Lerner and how forward-thinking she was, because... Now we're all talking about biodiversity and you know, saving the planet. And she, she was there then. We weren't allowed to plant anything that wasn't native, you know, outside the garden. We looked for local provenance planting. And I continued to work on big projects and married a landscape architect. And he worked on the Olympics and in London. So, so I carried on being involved and I worked in commercial practice in London and always those lessons have led me. And then when I went to Hong Kong, I got a job, as well as having kids, to teach history. And I used Chawton as one of my bedrocks because there are so many layers. Mm. When, you, when you go there, you can learn about Elizabethan to modern landscapes and also biodiversity. So I teach about restoring rivers and that kind of uh, parkland restoration, but in every type of development now so that's really taking us up to today and then I've also gone into a project with my husband where we're farming in Farnham mm-hmm. so we also work in Hong Kong and we're we're trying to apply all those design and um, biodiversity principles to this beautiful farm that we've we've bought here. Lovely yeah am I right in thinking Chawton had a kind of not a farm but it had a stables a while ago would that have affected the whole sort of planning of the gardens and the landscape there um well yes I mean there was um a whole farmyard uh, and that's been sectioned off and sold over the years and the stables were supposed to have been the finest in England built in 1558 or um, they were built at the same time as the house and the horses were incredibly important right through history. And even pictures of my grandfather with horses standing outside the stables. And uh, then that was our base camp. When we first started working on the project, we all had our team meetings in there because it had been renovated into a house. And then it was used as, as a centre for all the students when, they were, when they'd been working on Chawton House. So it's still part of the, the whole um, setup and Obviously, that whole farming element is a major part of the Chawton House estate. 
I guess it adds to more of those layers that you were talking about mm. a little mm. bit earlier. Mm. Fantastic. Well, that's really interesting. Thank you for giving us some insight into the landscape of Chawton House and the gardens. It's something that I think a lot of us, even myself and people that work at Chawton, as well as all the visitors, you don't really, I don't think you realise quite the extent of the hard work that goes on behind the scenes of making such fantastic views, such a wonderful garden and parkland to walk through. So it's really interesting to hear from you about that process. Thank you. Thank you. It was lovely to speak to you. Thank you. And you. Um, <laughs> is there anything else you'd like to add in that I've maybe missed out at all? Well, I think it's just one of the things that struck me when I was going through these sketches with Julia was that so much was done at Chawton House um, to make it the place it is now in back in the year 2000 and around then. Whole car parks were put in. Mm. And so the landscape changed into something that looked a bit like a construction site, a bomb site for a while. Right. right. And we also had that kind of thing going right up to the wall garden where we were clearing fallen trees off walls after the storms of 87 and 1990. The, the trees were still leaning on all these beautiful structures. So we had to basically do a massive job of clearing all of that and then the whole landscape just didn't have that beautiful presence anymore. It didn't have the same character. So then it was a matter of just going back and trying to put that all back again um, and make it the place it is now. Yeah. When you think about having a car park, you don't, I guess, Jane Austen, Edward Austen, they didn't really think about including a car park into the house. How on earth did you decide where that would go? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think they had carriage houses and in fact that's next to the stables mm. so you would have had your sweep of driveway like there is now up to the house and then the, then the carriages have been taken just back to the the old stables um, and then there was also a farm access that went to the house via the existing farm access and you'd have had all sorts of um, places to store things there so it was natural to have the car park in the same place as that old farm access. Mm. Interesting. Mm. Well, brilliant. Again, thank you very much for your time there. It's been really interesting talking to you. Yeah, good to speak to you too. Thank you again to landscape architect Cassie Blackwell and do keep an ear out for more episodes of the Chawton House podcast. You can also keep up to date with all the online events by visiting the Chawton House website and the social media pages where you can also find out more about visiting the gardens and of course the great house. Finally, thank you for this music. This is Guitalele's Happy Place by Kara Square found on ccmixter.org. Until next time, goodbye.